Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm your host, Kevin Pollack. Episode 38, Pamer Part 2 of my Mrs. Maisel pod. How you doing? Write to me. Let me know. Let me know if you have no, uh, follow-up questions or comments for David Pamer. My goodness gracious. My Mrs. Maisel pod at gmail.com. You know that's where you reach me. Part 2, yes. Well, it will probably start as abruptly as Part 1 ended. Uh, but we um, we have ourselves a, a great time here in part two. I love talking with David Pamer. As you listened and found out in part one, we have things in common, like being confused for each other um, and our love for this show. Uh, and more of that comes through here in part two. Uh, and uh, continue to write to us, my at gmail.com, because I'll be reading one of your emails later in this peer episode. Can't wait to... Uh, share that with you all right let's get to david pamer part two shall we um and again i do love hearing from you so thanks to all of you who are writing in all right here now david pamer part two we go to the button club where the great Stephanie Shu, also, I believe, Oscar nominated for everything all at once. Was she nominated? She should have been. Pretty sure she was. She's wonderful. Yeah, I know she was nominated for lots of things but, uh, from that. She is uh, another great Broadway actress, of course. Yeah. Um, playing May, love interest to now uh, Joel Maisel. Joel. Uh, and as it turns out here in the Button Club, we learn that the club's doing too well. And that's why there's trouble. Joel gets called downstairs. And he's doing too well. The club's doing too well. But the the dialogue that Amy writes for Michael Zegan and Stephanie Hsu is, again, that wonderful dance between the two of them, like, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. I mean, it's just yeah that that banter of the great comedies also between women and men. And, yes, and and these two actors' hands. Oh, yeah. Now that's it's just great. As an actor, it's so wonderful to be given words like that and situations like that. Yeah, so, to play well, with to yeah, I I. I meant to ask you about that too, just your initial experience of reading their scripts. It's one thing I'm sure when you were brought into this world, um, ha you, you were familiar with the series. You had seen some episodes before you were brought yeah, in. Well, the I was in the first season. So at that time, I don't, I, I was maybe was a pilot to watch. Yeah. I think that was just the pilot. Yeah. But I loved, so, I loved the pilot and I love that world. And, I've heard some other of your guests say this, but, you know, I grew up in New York uh, on Long Island, Nassau County, in Oceanside, to be exact. Um, so so I had Long Beach and Jones Beach, but I didn't go to Coney Island uh, uh, as much. But, you know, my early memories of New York are just this time, like 59, 60. I'd be, I was about five. Yeah. And, um my parents would take me into the city to either Radio City or to wow. see a Broadway play. I think Sound of Music was the first Broadway play I ever saw. And um, just 
I mean, the as everyone knows, the production design and the whole feeling of New York in 1959 yeah. is so, it's so much a part of, of the show and, and what we did and what everyone did, you know, the work that placed us in that milieu in a way that felt so real. Right. Um, and then to give us the dialogue that, that Amy does and the situations um, it's, it's an actor's dream. Yeah. 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 I, I, we, we spoke about, I asked you about um, dancing with Alex Borstein and, and, the first time you worked with her, but, but yeah, getting up that script uh, the first time for you to play Harry Drake and reading that episode, you're right. There's a sense as an actor, when you get your hands on the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't know about you, Kevin, but I, you know, often I get hired because like, they're not really sure what the part is, but they're like, <laughs> Oh, well, when we get someone like Pamer, he'll he'll come up with something. You, you don't get that with with Amy. She knows what she wants, and she gives you yeah. a rich a richness of of words, and you know, especially in that showbiz milieu, which you and I both love. Um, to be a manager, you know, to say things like "I got Groucho on the line." don't you know you know i got groucho holding or i got peter sellers i'm I'm like whatever i get you know it's it puts me in this world that i know as a child from being a child but then to live it as an adult what a what a what a joy you know yeah fantasy time absolutely yeah yeah well thank you for sharing that um i, I just love the sharing the the process with folks sure uh, from there, we're off to Shirley and Moish's house. Uh, and Midge is placing a call to the house because she's decided it's time to tell the family about the tragedy that befell her on the tarmac. But when she calls... I think Shirley answers, are you in Prague? Make sure to mention Jesus. He's very popular. <laughs> um, that made me laugh. Yeah. And, and I, is that the one with T Tony's line? Yeah. Kids being mean. Oh, the they're they're it's it's part one of the many part party for Ethan's birthday. Right. And yes, from Shirley answering the phone call from Midge, we do see Tony with these two children. And, I, you know, you talk about create a scenario and give the actor a, a chance to do something with it. <laughs> you couldn't cast a better scenario. <laughs> um, the person, Tony Shalhoub, loves uh, children, has has his own their own and and grandkids and uh yeah. abe seems fairly put out there's been storylines of him being concerned about grandchildren not being smart enough i'm right yeah i love i mean you, 
He says, they're being mean and none of the grown-ups are doing anything to stop it. I wrote that down as well. <laughs> you wrote it, yeah. It's so funny. I love that kind of, I mean, that just tells you everything about <laughs> Abe. Yeah. <laughs> Tony delivers it so yeah. perfectly. I love that we both made made a note of that exact yeah. quote. Um, and I assume the audience uh, remembers it so fondly because, yeah, Abe yeah. is forced to chat with these two boys over literature. It's just priceless. Yes. I know. I know. What's that thing on your face? It's called a mustache. Why is it moving? I'm talking. <laughs> you know, this the hell that he is. Uh, and then he gets on the phone with Midge and tells also tells her to make sure make a point of mentioning Christ. Um <laughs> and then we we cut away to the most spectacular set piece uh as Susie and Tess go to get their check, their insurance check. And they don't show the um name of the company i i made a note of um but but once again production design set deck all of it is done so beautifully we know that we're in a high-end financial institution she's come to get an insurance check so we've made the assumption that it's an insurance company we don't need to know which one <laughs> uh the receptionist says, yes, Mr. B. Oh, no. The, the, first, they're meeting with someone that they're familiar with. But they're told, well, first, you should. I know Mr. B is excited to meet with you. All right. Um, and they're shown this path. Diabolical in design. From the foyer of the receptionist of this high-end banking institution we find ourselves suddenly in the in the behind the scenes walkway of what looks to be a russian gulag uh and it leads to an interrogation um but with them and mr b wonderfully portrayed by dominic labardozzi oh, you pronounced that very well i got as close as i felt i could I, I love I, I love this actor. Have you worked with Dominic? No, he was wonder he's wonderful. He's yeah, I remember I think a little. Might have seen him first in the wire. Been around doing great work for a long time. Yeah. And he crushes this. Just beautifully nuanced, fantastic. Yeah. I'll have to track Dominic down, get him on the podcast. Yeah, um but man, does he play with his usual flawlessness? the not for nothing but use mess with the wrong kind of people tough guy <laughs> right yeah but in this case he's in a suit and he's for an insurance company and he's trying to be above board we do, he never represents a, a a sense of violence in any way shape or form it's just underneath the, the surface that um that they're not going to get away so so easily yeah no it's his physicality that you know he doesn't have to do much. He's he's there. Yeah. But he does a lot acting wise. But I just it's simple and it's real. His, his presence says a lot. You're right. It feels very real. And they and Amy 
gives some beautiful words like, you know, some neighbors said they saw two women paddling around in a rowboat that night, said they were drinking beer, laughing and singing at one point. I mean, that's just beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing and singing. Yes, we saw them do that (laughs) in the previous season when the house went up in flames. But to hear it recapped. Yeah, exactly. From an eyewitness, no less. Is just beautiful. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Wonderful acting and writing and and all all uh, departments represented so very well once again. Um, and then we have a a brief reprisal in Joel's office back at uh, Maisel and Roth. This is uh, the transition out of Joel's previous job of of helping to run that company and into his new button club ownership. Um, Joel's packing up to leave. Susie shows up asking about Midge's money. The discussion crawls further down the rabbit hole of that money. Mrs. Moskowitz joins, pours gasoline on this particular Susie fire. Um, yeah, that this this is a a juicy, fun, lovely scene, and that's uh, um is that Cynthia Darlow, by the way? Oh, it certainly is. Who's been on this very podcast? Cynthia does such a great job. I love Cynthia. I did Grease on Broadway with Cynthia Darlow. Oh, keep talking. Nineteen seventy-seven. She was one of the gang, and I love her. And she, I love seeing her on the show. Yeah. And uh, she's just a she's a great actress and always great. She's been doing it for you know for years, and it's just so wonderful seeing her. We, One of the I great the read through, and yeah, it was, nice. it was great seeing her. One of the great character actors that we were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Who just works all the time. Exactly. Um, thank and thank you for mentioning her. I had her in yeah, my notes. Loved because, her. Yeah, she and and. Her presence on the show, people write in uh, to the podcast at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. And they do, <laughs> they love asking and talking about her and asking about her. People love That's that. That's great. Reason. Yeah. That's great, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. We went on tour with Greece and then Broadway together. Yeah. Sure. Back I in the day. Yep. Um, I never did, you know, I, I mentioned starting out as stand up comedy. So I, I did some a couple of mini tours with other comedians, but I never did the sort of band of brothers nature of a, of a touring company. Um, so my, uh, imagination runs wild of what might be going on of a touring company. But what do you see what you do, Kevin? Yeah. Uh, scares the crap out of me. I mean, I mean, talking as yourself. Yeah. And like it's people say, what's the hardest part you ever played? Myself. Mm. It's I mean, when you're up there doing your thing, if if they like it, well, let's say if they don't like it, yep, it's they don't like me. They don't like Kevin. That's right. right? Whereas if I'm in a play and they don't like it, I can say, well, it's a friggin' director. That's right. Or it's a, it's a writer. Look at the crap I'm I'm supposed to say. Yeah. Um, but you, it's you. Um, unless they think you're me. But no, but it's you. And 
And um, <laughs> how is that? I mean, to me, that would be more frightening than Kevin appearing in the stage version of A Few Good Men. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, of course. Um, first I'm just of all, asking, because you do both, what, yeah. well, what is scarier? What is more gratifying about that? Yeah, I, I think there is a higher level of, of narcissism involved, but, um, when, when you have stood on stage alone speaking your words, I liken it to a prize fighter, in that you have people in your corner and you can train, but when you step into that ring. You live and die moment by moment based on your own uh, instincts, talent, and skills. So there is something wonderful about relying on others in the in, in the doings of an acting job. But standing alone and you are the writer, the editor, the choreographer, the producer, the, the performer. So you get all the credit and all the blame, but... Uh, the sense of control when things are going well is unparalleled in any other moment in life. Certainly on any acting experience where there is almost no control ever. Um, I directed a documentary about this that I, I've mentioned on the podcast, but I'll bring it up in context of this conversation, which also weirdly happens to be available on Amazon Prime. Uh, called Misery Loves Comedy, the thesis being you have to be miserable to be funny. But I interview 60 annoyingly funny people, wow. famous, annoyingly famous funny people. And there are chapters, and one of them is like bombs away and, and it, in great length. But also actors who do funny stuff. I ended up talking to Sam Rockwell and William H. Macy and a few others about who had been on stage and had that moment where a moment is supposed to be funny and they know it's coming, and then the reaction is not the same as it was the previous night. Right. You know, that, that experience. Sure. Um, but because I came up in that solo flight, 10,000 hours, when I was, there was interest in me doing a Broadway play. First of all, the 10-month run was seemed like a suicide mission. Um, they were bigger shows and they needed a longer commitment oh, for so I, the, uh, for the, for the few times I was asked to be in a play. Uh, I see. So yeah, yeah, they usually were. Yeah. I felt oh, like the yeah. first three months would be the greatest experience right. of my entire life. I knew this, the rehearsal, the process. I just thought it would be magical every day. There'd be frustration of course, but. And then I thought the, the middle three months would be, oh, this is still great. I'm Yeah. And then the last three months, I'd have a gun in my mouth every night before I went on stage. I just know this about me. Um, because of the living and dying in my own flop sweat as a stand-up comedian, sure. but being able to change the words at any moment. Right. That parachute... I think might be the main difference as to why the stand-up is so much more my first love 
that I'm the goal as an actor is to be in the moment as much as I am when I'm doing stand-up comedy mm -hmm. where, and it's an interesting parallel universe while at the same time dichotomy. Um, and then I've talked about with other actors on the, in the Amy Sherman Palladino universe and Dan Palladino, um, where, as much as we love the freedom to make things our own, when you are given these great words and you are asked to memorize every syllable and say them exactly as written, I, children love those boundaries, don't we? Yeah. And well, rules. I'm not a big fan of chaos in life. I love yeah. rules. I wish more people followed them. So I did find Valhalla in the Paladino universe of all you got to do is know your words, make some specific choices. They're counting on you to be this character. You don't have to stray. You don't have to make shit up. Nor do you get the freedom of that, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I really found heaven on earth for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, well, it did combine, actually. Yeah. Sort of what you do so well and what they do so well. And, yeah. And put you in that situation where it wasn't, I don't know, it kind of melded in a, in a wonderful way with you and Moisha. And, you know. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And well, there's the other great irony that I've discussed on the podcast, which is um, my fear of getting caught as an actor. Of caught not having of not having training and getting caught acting um, forced me to, to uh, feel most comfortable with the less is more technique. And then in, in fact, making a career out of doing nothing as a way to, <laughs> as a way to not get caught. Right. And then I get cast as Moish, the bloviating, often obnoxious, larger than life. There is no underplaying. Well, there's a few, but it's mostly overplaying. Um, and with the best reviews of my life. Right. Right. So I have wasted a 38 year career <laughs> doing less. I should have been doing more all along as it turns out. Um, I think you're doing good. <laughs> thank you right back at you uh diving back into our episode yeah, i don't want to what do you got you got hot hot off the press um i i had questions for you about coney island but we're not quite there yet so um, okay do you want to should we go to coney island we did or when are we at the dive? we're almost there we have one scene prior okay. to, yeah just one quick scene it's the dive bar because it introduces the character alfie brilliantly portrayed by Gideon oh and Lick. i'm going to talk about him yeah <clears throat> did you so see wonderful. him i did he's so wonderful and 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 you had mentioned to me that that he's in maestro with bradley cooper um he's playing his lover yeah is he oh he plays his lover is he in that opening scene the first scene <clears throat> the opening scene of Maestro? Yeah, maybe. I don't know if you've seen it, but... I have seen the film, but I've seen it. It's now been so long, I don't remember the opening scene. Okay. I just remember that at some point he has a... Um, 
a not so obvious lover and then it becomes a little more obvious um and that's gideon and that's gideon he's he's so wonderful and he's going to be doing uh a12 the uh, amy amy's new series he's not only going to be acting in it he's also in the writing room the writers really yeah so he uh succeeded most uh, from the Maisel universe, along with Luke Kirby, deservedly so, who will also be one of the leads. Really? I, 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 in in twelve, He is wonderful. Uh, it, it, Luke it, is, is Lenny Bruce, right? Luke played Lenny Bruce. And then yeah. in uh, Etoile, he'll play the, I think, the uh, president of the New York Ballet, I think is his part, but he's one of the leads Yeah, in, in their next show. Yeah. So, yeah, so Gideon Glick shows up as Alfie in this dive bar. That's where Susie is trying to tie one on. Um, and this magician who seems to be doing tricks for, for free drinks uh, clicks her into the middle of the force. And I didn't notice it the first time I saw the episode, but I noticed it in this one right before Susie somehow finds herself in the forest the magician Alfie looks at a wall calendar at the dive bar, which has a photo of a forest. And so we are seeing him draw inspiration from that. And we do see him doing a hypnotic repetition movement to get her into a trance of sorts to help somehow explain why she is, seemingly zapped into the middle of a forest yeah um i thought it was fun i mean really fun and really <laughs> different for the show and very different <laughs> and how wonderful yeah and it's like you don't have to explain it it happened and yep, yep. let's uh, on with the rest of the you know on with the rest of the show and now coney island yeah oh, really. thank you literally thank you. <laughs> um <clears throat> yeah so what are your first uh, uh, comments or questions about well I, I was so impressed with um that whole scene yeah from a production design uh level and an art direction to the amount of wonners when i watched it again yeah. you guys did a lot of wonners and as we all know that's one take non-stop no cuts so you got to remember your dialogue. I, I was, uh, I commend you huh. on on your entrance. I think it was the entrance because it brought you and the gang in all in one shot. Yep. And you walked through, you know, dozens of extras and you know all kinds of Coney Island stuff going on, and um, you may have stopped and Abe was talking. It was. It felt like a three or four minute take. And I took you yeah. over to Joel, um, who yeah. you meet, and then you and Joel keep walking. You yeah. break off from the, the other gang, and then you walk over to the Ferris wheel and sit in front of it. And the cut occurs somewhere in there. But, um, you know, it's. I said to myself as an actor, like, God, I, you know, that's like a four or five minute take. Um, that's nerve wracking. Uh, it's because if you if you have a line at the very end of the take, <laughs> then all you're doing is thinking of that one line through the whole scene yeah. and hoping that you don't screw up the final line. Yeah, you know, it reminded me of that movie Rope. 
the Hitchcock movie where oh, he, yeah. he used nine minute takes, you know, mm. for the whole movie. So um, how how was that for you, Kevin? Do you like those oneers? Do you like those long takes, or or do you prefer like I mean, or do you prefer being able to screw up and go back and you know start over? Well, they it? were they were the most intimidating part of the show mm-hmm. experience. Um, and again, mostly because I had not had a, a background in theater, which is what they ultimately represent. Uh, you get one shot at this. Now, you do get more than one oneer. When it's screwed up, you do get to go back. But, but because no one wants, as you said, to be the reason to ruin the reason it, for the want for the retake on the then one-er. you rehearse it like a piece of theater. Um, which I mentioned at the top of our conversation, this was the part that we did rehearse three or four months before we shot it. But even then, as as much as we spent almost a full day, I want to say, rehearsing it, easily half a day, a very long half a day, um, because it was three or four months later, while that was helpful, it's been four months. Been four I'm months. in my 60s. I don't remember <laughs> much of what we rehearsed. Right. Um I remembered enough so that when we were on the day now as a West Coast Jew, which most people don't believe about me, <laughs> um, I think it's an attitude problem. <laughs> I had never been to Coney Island. Well, and I, uh, myself coming from New York, I, I think I was there once. Right. You know, and as I said, I did the Long Beach Jones Beach thing. Sure. But, um, and when you've got that, and for me, it was Santa Cruz Beach. But yeah, everyone had the the Ferris wheel somewhere in their childhood. I'm sure. Of course. If you are fortunate, I don't mean everyone, everyone. No, um, I, but but so, that is is that the original Wonder Wheel? That's it is still. That's yeah. Wild. We were walking on hundred year old wood. Wow. Which is wow. never a, a good idea. I want to no. remark on. No. Um, and, it's not and, for everyone. Right. Um, and then when you got into the ferris wheel and i love those cages you know oh yeah that just reminded me that it was like a sense memory to see that those iron cages they put you in so did they shoot that obviously they didn't go way high for you did they do sort of a poor man's process as they used to call it like you're they can shoot into the sky so it makes you look like you're up high but were you really not that high off the ground so um i uh i was first of all i'm I'm happy to explain this i I reached out to the brilliant visual effects supervisor leslie robson foster Mm -hmm. to ask her to be on the show um and, you know, her reply was interesting, which is, first of all, thank you, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, she, too, is often an eyeball deep in working on Paladino's next show, but said that she is not the biggest fan of spoiling the magic and explaining how they how they do. And then also, oh, I, don't, I no, would no, not no. want to give away secrets I... yeah no but but from her perspective from her job she was saying she didn't want to undermine the brilliance of the set director of the production designer by um suggesting 
it's all the visual effect. But when it comes to those cages, uh, I've already talked um, a little bit in the past about with a couple actors. It took, I think, three, at least two, maybe three days to shoot on a soundstage all the in a cage stuff. Okay, so that well, that answers part a good part of my question. So yeah, the cages at, were shot on on a soundstage. Yeah, at Coney Island. We were really there when we're in the queue and they load us. I think Midge is the one you the only one you actually see loaded into one of those cages. Once we're all in our cages and we're yelling at each other, one of my favorite scenes of any television show. Uh, yeah, me too. The editing, uh yeah. timing wise was I'm gonna tell you a scene that reminded me of. Oh, please. What, um, what's so brilliant about it is is in the editing, along with your wonderful performance and all the great performances, but it's the wide shots. Yep. Of and then the wider. Yep. And then the wider. Yes. Of the Wonder Wheel. Yeah. So you know it's a close up of you or someone yelling, "Midge, you bought the apartment." What? Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. And then it's a little wider, and then it's a wider still. It reminded me of the Godfather when he finds the horse's head in the bed because <laughs> it starts. It starts with a close-up of him screaming, ah! Then yeah. they show, like, the the room. Ah! Yeah. Then they show the house. From the backyard. Show, then yeah. they show all of Beverly Hills, and you hear this scream. But I just thought it was brilliant the way they were intercutting the different sizes of the, of the wheel yes. and, and of the players. Yeah, there uh, were so many aspects of this piece Um you know, I, I that's one of the reasons I did want to give credit to Leslie Robson Foster, the via VFX supervisor, but also mm -hmm. all the people who worked on the sound stages. Yeah. To create yeah. these platforms. So while they built the cage that each one of us would swap in and out of while the other actors stood nearby and did their off camera lines, we just had the one cage. They built this platform two stories up so that those moments in the episode where I think it's Joel's character or Midge who looks back over their shoulder at the cage on the opposite end of the wonder wheel. Yeah. They did shoot some angles from the cage on the soundstage where the actor was looking back at the other actor on a bench 30 feet high on a platform that was built so that you not only had reference and point of view, but that they could incorporate it into the shot. Wow. So yeah, I, much. I know the shot you're talking about because it's yeah. like all the way yeah. as the other side of the wheel. Exactly. I just wanted to give credit to the amount of effort because you're right. The, the editing and the pacing of all the close-ups of each one of us in our cage is what ultimately sells the comedy as well as the exposition and keeps the thing moving along. But to go to the lengths that they went in production, they yeah. all deserve such and every department yeah. once again, nailing it beyond i remember going to that rehearsal process and um 
Leslie Robson Foster, I'm just going to keep saying her name, had built a little miniature of the Wonder Wheel. And she was trying to explain to us where, wh why we were using this platform so that when you're in this little car right here at the front, you see you'll be looking at the car at the back of the wheel. And that's what that platform is over there. Absolutely. Um, uh, but I'll also say, seated on that bench, 30 feet up, might have been, I don't know what two and a half, two stories. It, it was so high up, you you felt nervous. Oh, there so you still you were high enough that you felt nervous. There were seatbelts on the bench. Wow. Yeah, it was not that it was not a big platform we were seated on. A lot of safety precautions. Don't want to suggest there weren't. But uh, it, it, each of us did mention how uneasy we were to varying degrees. I see. Uh yeah, it was it was many days to to get all the elements. But we did the the wonder at the opening of the scene was broken up into a couple pieces. The initial wonder goes from the opening all the way around to the point when Joel and Moish do sit down and then there's a little cross shooting coverage. And right. then the wonder and then the wonder does pick up. I think you're right with Abe and the kids. Did you bring any money when he's buying the tickets? And and then it carries back around with some other folks. Um, uh, and then as we're loaded into, we're in the, in the queue before we're loaded into the cage is another hilarious extensive scene because that's when Midge catches up with the group physically. Right. Before we're all loaded in. And, and, Abe's attempt to keep the process moving is one of the things that drives the scene and makes me laugh the hardest because everyone else is off in their own little mental universe enjoying themselves, God forbid, whereas <laughs> Abe just wants to keep things moving along. And um, yeah, it's pretty great. Moish ends up with two sailors in his cage. All right. <laughs> yeah, you know, the... Again, the writing is just so, you know, when I, when I go back to the writer's room in my mind and I wonder, okay, how will Midge tell the family? We haven't committed to the setting yet. It could be anything. It could be any setting anywhere. She just has to break the news to the family that she was fired from the tour. Um, is it at a dinner with a lot of fun, funny so the fact that it is this Coney Island scene is the most convoluted, ridiculous. And now I'm even remembering right before Midge arrives, Joel goes to a standalone payphone. Yes. And he, the ocean, yeah. And with the ocean in the background. And he walks back towards the wonder wheel just as Midge is approaching our camera stops as he leaves frame and stays with her. And then as she walks into the area of Coney Island that the wonder wheel is at, our camera rises up on this, on this crane. Again, these beautiful shots, extraordinary stuff. So yeah. from a writer's perspective in the writer's room, the, the scene is just about Midge telling the family she got, right. that's all it is. Yeah. But no, someone's no. Got, someone's got to say, wouldn't it be great if? <laughs> what if it was a Coney Island? What are you yeah. talking about, Jim? <laughs> pack up your desk and you get out by noon. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
you know, I just, I just want to give credit to the creative process in terms of from a writer's, from a storytelling standpoint, you've just got to have Midge tell the family she got fired. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. But how do we get 10 pages out of that? <laughs> <laughs> and how, how do we entertain our audience with this being the season opener with yet another ginormous, memorable set piece? Yeah. You know, and how do we take our, our, our cast and crew on a little road trip to the actual Coney Island? And how do we shoot part of it on a soundstage in January and February and then pick up in April when the weather's nice for the exterior stuff? Um, it's it's I, I'd never it's experienced so much of what this show ultimately yeah. brought to my little world. So I, I love using the podcast as an opportunity to shed light on all these departments and all these Absolutely. creative people who delivered um, what, dare I say, yes, yet again, will be one of the more revered television series in this milieu, you know, this period piece, this larger than life, and yet still about family at the core. And then you've got this, it's a woman's trajectory. It's a woman empowering, um, being dumped and making her own way in the most unusual career for a woman at the time. Because um, there's a moment in, in a not too previous episode where the character of Imogene is having trouble with her husband, Archie, and immediately shows up to learn typing at a secretarial typing, which is another great visual. But, you know, I, I hearken back to the genesis of the Midge Maisel trajectory. Right. The options available to her when her husband leaves. Um, of all the professions to choose, are you insane? The answer is <laughs> yes, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then we are back at the Button Club. Then this was the one I was thinking of with Joel and Archie, and Archie's talking about um, not domestic bliss. But there's another one -er This is another one -er. at the top of the scene. Um, and are the wonders rehearsed? Well, I, I know the Coney Island is different, but are the wonders rehearsed at length if, if they involve hours, steady cam walking? Yeah, yeah, because you're going to get the one, you're going to get one, and when you get it, then you can go home. But uh, it yeah. might take you 24 takes to get the one. That's, ex um, that's exactly right. So there's extensive rehearse, rehearsal going on, hour two for all the moving parts. Right. Because, because you're it, also staging the ba the background players yep. as well. But yeah, and, and our steady cam operator can't enough be said about the great Jim McConkey. Mm -hmm. But and all of his crew. Yeah. These and guys. all of the lighting people and the sound people uh uh who who are part of this choreography, yeah. this moving universe that captures whatever central characters are, are doing the dialogue. Right. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, cool. it, it, it is absolutely rehearsed for every department. Yeah. Um, for hours. Cause you, yeah, you're right. You're going to spend a lot less time doing coverage. With all right. Those, well, all that's those... the thing. You, you don't have to do the coverage, but you got to get the one or. Yeah. 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 Quite a learning curve for all of us. And then I think Amy fell in love with the Warner mm -hmm. and, and, and it became one of the signatures of the show that there's, there's going to be a lot of Warners. Yeah. Um, and I will say as a director myself, uh, it's all I want to do now. Correct. Yeah. Uh, it, well, it, it, the Warner. More Warners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the last two things I directed were before Maisel, one of them right before Maisel. So I hadn't been introduced to the the true glory and 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 insanity of 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 the Warner. And but I do see how seductive it is yeah. in terms of a director's tool, totally. and the actors um, come to love it. I think I do too. Yeah, especially those of you who come from theater. I think it's a yeah. It taps into something. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. In, in that scene oh. at, at the Button Club, I'm, I'm looking at the notes. Okay. The two of them eventually cheer to their first shakedown uh, from the gambling parlor downstairs. And then Susie arrives. And has come for some money. Uh, we go into uh, Joel's office and he has to write her a check. And that whole back and forth is spectacular. Yeah. Um, thereby no, there's, so, there's so much there. It's great. Thereby relieving Susie of having to return Midge's bounty of gig payments. That was Susie's responsibility. But, oh, there's a special kind of vigorish that comes with this loan. Um, yeah, pretty great. Pretty amazing. Um, and then very briefly, we're back at Shirley and Moisha's home where it's a brief shot of Midge exhausted at the Maisel dining table. Ethan's birthday party has ended all around her. And then we're off to the stage deli. Um, before we get to that final part of that opening scene, that's how we end the show, as you mentioned, this wraparound mm -hmm. of the stand-up. So the last scene of the episode really takes place at the stage deli, where come full circle in one episode. Susie and Midge are making plans for now what? Right. Um, there are some wonderful actors here. I want to mention the comic character, stand-up comedian Eugene is played by Michael Torpe. Uh, his sidekick Sally is Emmy Harrington. Comic one as build is PJ Morrison. Comic two is Matthew Broussard. They all do great work in this stuff. Right. Yeah. Um they're 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 sharing in the early part of this some road gig stats. Right. Which is great. 
brings us to the booth of Midge and Susie and and uh, I love those. I mean, that little detail of those yeah comics is just wonderful. I Isn't mean, that delicious. Yeah, and it's wonderful that 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 Amy and Dan they they want them. It's not like usually the network will say, "Well, you don't want to pay extra just to bring in someone for a couple few lines," but it's it's all the detail. It's yeah. It's that whole atmosphere of movement and action and things going on and business, you know, the show business and a rich so you world. Need, you yeah, you need you need that. And the players are so wonderful. Right. That it's just delicious to have them all. Yeah. I love hearing you say that because I feel so much the same. And uh it's why I think I keep trying to shine a light on on all of the production and all of the creative writing that yeah sure it's just midge telling the family and here's how they decide to do it yeah we could do it at a kitchen table don't, you don't need the wheel <laughs> <laughs> you could see some bean counting line see a producer. Bean counter doing that saying why do you have to go there it's happening yeah. at the kitchen table It'd be wonderful yeah the first thing i'm going to say at this budget meeting amy and dan <laughs> is that if we lose coney island we save the whole episode <laughs> so could you Please come up with a way for Mitch to tell the family it doesn't involve that. Maybe cost. they're playing Monopoly or something. <laughs> um, anyway. Oh, God. Well, there was the be beauty and joy of shooting season four, having won already. Boy, through the first three seasons of the show, we had won 20 Emmys. Wow. Exactly. Insane. Um, and all the insane amount of other awards. But at that point, um, it was an, a worldwide sort of bizarre phenomenon the largest export of a television show to india the country and wow. from, from america so on and so forth but consequently that led to um all the money that fell out of jeff bezos wallet that day or his pocket that morning or what they were able to collect from his couch cushions was more than enough for uh to cover the wheel an, an endless budget that allowed us all these things yeah. um yeah so in that in that last scene at the stage deli where miriam says i i don't want to do any more opening gigs um and and susie says miriam you and i both know this is not how the business works and that is answered one of the last lines of this episode is by miriam saying then let's change the business. Mm. And it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, also, I like in their, their conversation in that scene before that last exchange, it allowed the two of them to sort of a hilarious trip down a three season memory lane of how the, they Midge got to this place. Right. Mm -hmm. And in Susie's eyes, it all led to the magic carpet ride of opening up for Shy Baldwin. So in her eyes, we just got to get you another Shy Baldwin. Right. You know, in Susie's eyes, this is easy. You, you, you may have been let go, but I can have the longer conversation with other tours as to why that may have happened. Um, all this is in in the dialogue and and in the relationship and and no they're not going to go the easy route um right 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And then back at the gaslight where Midge finishes up her revenge and, and her with her now signature thank you and good night. Right. And our camera somehow then chaperones her out of the gaslight into the night air of the East Village and once again rises up on a very expensive crane. Right. Just beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, the next episode is the return of Harry Drake. So uh, that's right. I, that, I will be in Central Park um, mid episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, how how um, about that? You just show up. At, where are you shooting today? Same Central Park. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I, I, you know, when they when they dress the, the background and they had me talking about the buildings. Uh, yeah. Um, on Central Park uh, West and South. And saying, oh, I lived up there and I lived and I really felt it was like 1959. I was in Central Park. Yeah. Eating a corn dog. Right. With Susie trailing behind me. Yeah. And um, I mean, where else do you get to do that? You just don't get to do that very much. Right. You no, know? right. we're gonna transform Central Park into 1959, and you're gonna be one of the main players in this little piece we're doing. Yeah. It's like unheard of, you know. It's Especially like for you who might have been a little pisher whose parents took him to see Sound of Music at Radio City and then might have walked him through Central Park as a five-year-old. Yes. And then however long after you might have had dreams of being an actor in a thing like Sound of Music. <laughs> and there you are in that same park as an, an Academy Award-nominated actor in oh. a much-awarded film television show. Yeah. Yeah. Not a bad deal. Not not bad at all. <laughs> not bad at all. Well, congratulations on all of it and continued success to you. Um, thank you again for joining me. Sure, for, Kevin. For what will for clearly asking. be a two-parter episode. Thank I don't know how again. you're going to cut this one, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure you'll figure out a way. And uh, my, my thank yous will continue as we take you and your bride to a meal of your choosing. Oh. Please. <laughs> Uh, necessary i'm always happy to talk to you but i would love to see you of course okay good good now that i know you're so close by i have zero yes experience. yeah we, we're living very close to each other so okay good until we break bread thank you again my dear friend and uh, uh, uh just a tremendous amount of respect for you and and all your work and a few good men <laughs> Oh, the love fest. The love fest of David Paymer. Yes, indeed. Um, isn't he great? Isn't he great? I think so. Let me know what you think. Write to me. My Mrs. at gmail.com. I, I think you hear in our conversation that there's a great deal of uh, appreciation and respect for each other and we uh will be dining with the uh with the, with the wives with the gals uh next week very excited about that now that was the follow-up text thank you so much that was perfect i wrote to him in the text please may i take you and the missus to supper uh, as the least i can do and it's set and i will report back as to how it goes follow-up questions Write to us, my Mrs. Mazelpot at gmail.com. Yep, love to hear from you. Yes, I would. Um, let's get to the mailbag and read uh, one of your emails. Let's do that. 
open up the old mailbag. Here we are. Uh, This one comes from Laura, who wrote, Hello, Kevin. Thanks for keeping the marvelous story alive with the podcast. My question is for you. Why isn't Moish at the Gordon Ford's show in the finale? I know that Shirley says he fell and was hurt, but since all of the important people in Midge's life were there, I wonder if somehow you, Kevin, weren't able to be on set that day. I just feel that Midge and Moish deserved... um, Midge, let's see, I just feel like Moish... And Midge deserved his presence there. Oh, okay. Thanks again, and sorry if the English is not perfect. Sorry if I can't read well. You're you're doing great here, Laura. Uh, she finishes uh, with the sign-off. From a huge fan from Brazil, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Your English was perfect. My uh, ability to read, not so much. All right, so I'm pretty sure I answered this in a previous episode of the podcast. So I would encourage you, if you haven't continued listening from way back when you wrote this email, to catch up. But I will repeat it here. Hey, why not? Um, I was absolutely written into the finale in, in, in that uh, Gordon's, Gordon Ford's show uh, final stand-up. In fact, Amy Sherman wrote me a great beat where when Midge finishes her set on the television show, and I believe says thank you and good night, there's a shot of me and Shirley in the audience, and I say to her with a look of astonishment, well, I guess she is funny. Look at that. I think, I guess she is funny. Something to that effect. And it was great. And I loved that moment very, very much. And and then greatly look forward to being a part of it. In the production of the show, yeah, there's... um scheduling issues that do come up and I had a personal issue that I you know chose over my professional obligation um didn't feel good about it then don't feel good about it now as decisions go but that was the only reason Uh, I was included I was written in had to opt out and regret the hell out of it and will for the rest of my life but I love that you wanted Moish to be there. And just know, he was meant to be, and I wanted him to be. And not everything we want comes true. Thank you, Laura. Um, And uh, right back. I like hearing uh, from some of you whose uh, letters I I read. Yeah, right back. My messesmazelpot at gmail.com. Let me know if the answer was satisfactory and if you have any follow-up questions. As same for the rest of you. Um, please tell everyone you ever met. How do you listen to the show? What, what portal are you using? Any questions and comments for anyone who ever worked in any capacity on the show? My Mrs. Mazapod at gmail.com. I would love to answer your questions and comments. Maybe you just have a comment or a suggestion. Mm, I like that too. All right. That is our show for today, this episode, 39, uh, David Pamer Part 2. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tease the next episode other than to say it's a good one. Ooh, it's exciting. Uh, please be kind to each other. Until then, I'll see you in my dreams. That's it. 
That's all. Okay, just this last part. But that really is it. This is it now. I'm signing off. Thank you. Okay, I gotta go. This is me leaving. Okay. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Foxx, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q Code. Q Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.